Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in again to another episode of the Hollywood Half Hour. My name's Andrew Jacob, and with me again is my co-host, Sean Burgos. What's up, everybody? What's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing good, man. How about yourself? I'm okay. It's that time of year again, though. That's right. It's Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. So I thought we would carry Valentine's Day into our movie discussion topic. How does that sound? Okay. For Valentine's Day movies, that's, that's pretty interesting. All yeah. Right. So let me pose this question to you, though. Off the top of your head, how many Valentine's Day movies can you think of where Valentine's Day's not just the release date, but mm-hmm. it's a central element to the plot? Central element of the plot. Okay, so, oh, God, it's like, that's really hard. Like, hey, I could think of a, I could think of a couple. No, no, Sleepless in Seattle was not a Valentine's Day movie. No, was it, it actually no? was. Was it really? It does, yeah. Part of it took place on Valentine's Day. Okay, well, what about You've Got Mail? Uh, no, I don't think that you, was not one. That was not one of them. Yeah. But there's movies like the Gary Marshall yes. Valentine's Day movie. Of course, it's called Valentine's Day. Exactly. Right. But aside from that, there's really not that many. And ironically enough, mm-hmm. there's one genre that actually takes over in the most Valentine's Day themed movies. What? You're gonna like this. What horror? No, it does. Really? Yeah. You're saying so? so where 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 Valentine's Day is. Central to the plot of the story, it's horror movies. It's horror movies seem to dominate. There's okay. There's a 2001 movie called Valentine that had Denise Richards in it. The killer had a cupid, right? Like the, a porcelain the, cupid mask. The mask, yeah, I remember exactly. that exactly. Okay. There's um, let's see. There's two My Bloody Valentine's movies. There's the 1981 version, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the 2009 remake with Jensen Eccles of Supernatural. Yes, yes. yes. So yeah, that that one genre seems to dominate. And that being said, I think we should discuss one that you actually saw kind of recently. Yeah, 1981's My Bloody Valentine, the one directed by George Mahalka, which is a pleasant surprise because before you had mentioned it, before we watched it together. I didn't know that was a, well, the newest one with, with uh, um, Supernatural star. Jensen Eccles. Thank you, Jensen Eccles. I didn't realize that was a remake. Yeah. So that was pretty cool to see the original and Canadian nonetheless. It is. It's a, it's a Canadian slasher yeah. film. And you probably know. So there was a period right after Halloween came mm-hmm. out where every horror movie coming out was some kind of slasher with right. a silent moving killer. It was popular then. It was popular at that time. And then... In, I think it was 1980, Friday the 13th came out with their quote-unquote Halloween knockoff. Mm-hmm. And My Bloody Valentine kind of followed in that that tradition of the time of the movies where it was all slasher movies. Mm-hmm. But it's probably one of the more... One of the more cult classics of the ones that have come out. Most of the other ones, like, you know, the elements of 80s campy slasher films. Right. right. I personally think My Bloody Valentine had... Had a lot more production value and a lot more went into it. And well, really quick, just kind of give me your overall thoughts since you just watched it. Right. I mean, watching it for the very first time last night. Yeah, I, like I saw that it had like those typical campy horror tropes, but it they weren't. You know what it reminded me of? It was it was like as if it was a like one of those scholastic books you read in kindergarten, like a really watered down, <laughs> kid friendly version of like an American horror slasher film right that's there there wasn't a lot of gratuitous sex there's like moments was implied but what they really did hammer home were the the kills themselves they did they were pretty creative yeah (laughs) and in the version that you watched that was actually the extended cut right it had a couple of seconds of extensions on the kill sequences Mm -hmm. because 
I don't know if it was unique to Canadian censorship or if it was part of American censorship as well in distribution, but there was there was a significant amount of time cut out. Like the extended shower kill sequence yes. was cut down. You don't actually see the, the girl's head getting really? stuck on the pipe. Yeah. That had to be a, a Canadian censor thing. Yeah, because that's something that would have absolutely been put to an American audience. Oh, yeah. Easily. Especially at this time in the 80s. Easily. You would have seen Jason Voorhees plug that person right up into a meat hook or whatever it may be. You would yeah. have seen it all. And this is also coming off the tales of Texas Chainsaw yes. Massacre. Like, yeah. not a gory movie, but it's still a very intense movie for that time. And it's interesting, like, we're talking about this, like, the, the how it parallels with either the previous horror films that came out prior to it and the ones that it may have given inspiration to. Like, one of the things that I that you, you and I were talking about as we were watching it last night uh, was, like, the whole panic in the town and the mayor is terrified, the sheriff's terrified. It was very reminiscent of movies like the mayor, the mayor character of Jaws, right? It is, yeah. Right? In Amityville, he's like, no, no, we got to keep the beaches open. Don't tell anybody. We need our summer business. Yes, and- yes. And then also, like the way the mayor and the sheriff talked about, like, oh my God, remember that time 20 years ago? Very much like Freddy Krueger, how the whole town, the adults of the town remember that particular violent murderer. Yeah, and what's interesting is, that predates Nightmare on Elm Street yep. by about three years. So it's, ah. did Wes Craven take a little bit from this? or? But it is a very close parallel. So Is Wes Canadian? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> is he? I don't know. Well, I mean, we, have to, we might have to fact check that. Maybe. <laughs> uh, but before we get into deeper talk, let's uh, just go general overview of the movie. For those of you who haven't seen it, we're yes. going to go into some spoiler territories. Yep, yep. yep. But so the movie is it takes place in a fictional town called Valentine Bluffs in Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia, Canada. And like the town's namesake, they they love their Valentine's holiday. They have decorations all over the place. There is a um, there's a Valentine's Day dance that goes on that plays to a key element of the story later on. Right. But within that framing context, uh, it's a it's a coal mining town Mm -hmm. and it's implied that it's generational grandfathers fathers and sons have all shared this uh this occupation if you live there you deal with the mines exactly everyone's known each other for their entire lives so within that there's an urban legend that floats around valentine bluffs about a miner who had been trapped underneath the rubble of an explosion and he had gone insane and his vengeance against the town is to kill those who left them behind in the mine. There's two supervisors. So he comes back a year after being in an insane asylum and starts his killing streak. Boom. And part of his whole shtick is, you know, don't do it on Valentine's Day. Don't do anything for Valentine's Day. And that's, you know, again, spoiler alert, the mayor and the sheriff, they co- they're they constantly arguing back and forth about, should we do this Valentine's Day parade, uh, not parade, sorry, like party, dance, all that stuff. And obviously, as we come to find out, oh, no. That man, the murderer, the the psychopath, was named Harry, Harry Warden. Harry Warden comes back and wrecks havoc again. So, again, I keep I keep thinking about like Freddy Krueger, like this 
villain from the past that caused so much generational trauma and that's causing all of this current trauma with the young people in town. Yeah, and you know, that kind of plays into one of the elements that I thought was really well done. I mean, granted, this isn't, we're not, you're not going to see this movie having won Academy Awards or Golden no. Globes or whatnot. It's no. good for what it is. The sense of camaraderie amongst the amongst the actors, because you could, I don't know if it was by design or by accident, but it felt like these guys had worked together for right. a long time. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they were from a, a similar acting school or they just kind of cross paths a lot. They just mm-hmm. didn't they all just seem very comfortable with each other? Like they've yeah. known each other for a long time. They, they did a great job of getting capturing that like small town feel where, like you said before, everyone knows each other. Mm-hmm. So therefore everyone knows each other and their kids know each other and their grandkids and so on and so on. And it, it really felt again, like the, the young guys at least in, in particular here, like they work together Every day, all day, right? Yeah. There's a really f- interesting scene too. I remember in the in the mine. It was toward like the when, when they're introducing the conflict between the two main male characters, the leads, right? TJ and Axel. Yes, TJ and Axel. When you know, at first they're like, "TJ, you disappeared." We were wondering what happened. We used to be friends, and then all of a sudden, because they're at this after the same girl. You have that trope happening, right? Like, exactly. Oh, you got man. this complex love triangle. Yes. It's TJ's once girlfriend, Sarah. Yes. Now she's with his best friend, Axel. There's that element of complexity to it. And mm-hmm. and then, you know, they they don't actually go into detail on why TJ left. They don't. They, like some say like it was just very sudden. Yep. It was it's implied it's been for a couple of years. And right. I think there's one brief dialogue where they say he was on the West Coast. So mm-hmm. I don't know, is that West Coast of Canada? Does he jump into the state side and yeah. go to the West Coast there? But yeah. he just said multiple times, like, I fell on my ass. I fell on my ass and I regret it. Yeah. So he's, you know, reluctantly come back home, come back to the mine he once worked at. And it's his dad's mine. The right. Hanager mine belongs Hanager to mine. his father and his his probably father. So it's a lineage. Yeah. And it, it's, it, again, you have that trope, right? So Axel represents that on like the... Basically, I'm the football star of high school, whatever. Exactly. I'm the bro, whatever, right? Musclehead kind of dude, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I still think he looks like Kurt Russell. But <laughs> I didn't see that throughout I the did. movie. I did. As soon as I saw him, I'm like, oh, that's that's big trouble in Little China, Kurt Russell. But, you know, I, I you know, besides the point, then you have TJ's character, the mysterious guy. He is like, again, the trope is darker hair, mysterious. He kind of hangs out in the corner, right? Mm-hmm. He's not like all comfortable. He, it almost feels like like whenever they depict veterans coming back from from World War Two. Oh yeah, yeah you know they're yeah. like they haven't they haven't uh, uh, been able to, to like return to society, right. kind yeah. of yeah. So kind of ha- felt like that. So going back to that whole point, that that one particular scene in the mine where they introduce that conflict, where they finally get into and get into a fight, physical mm-hmm. confrontation, right? The 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 uh, what's his name the supervisor I guess it's their supervisor their boss of their current f- platform or whatever level they are mm-hmm. in the mine comes up and stops them but instead of like reprimanding them like some office would it it was more like a, a coach or like a father saying you need to cut that out right now we're yeah. a team we got to stick together mm-hmm. uh, so again capturing that camaraderie. They they did it. They did it really. Uh, they did it justice there. Um, and obviously, we see them how they party towards the end of the movie, yeah. right? When they do the actual Valentine's Day celebration, we see that more. How everybody knows each other, and they have, and again, just like every other horror movie, 
uh, if we're talking about the 80s campy ones, right? We see those particular tropes. Again, we talked about Axel the Musclehead, the mm-hmm. mysterious guy, TJ. <laughs> we have our dear favorite friend. What was his name? Howard. Howie. Howard. Howie. I call, his name is Howard, but I call him Howie. Yeah. The comedic relief. The goofball. The com- <sighs> so actually, that brings up an interesting like subtopic. Yeah. So we we know our American tropes in horror movies almost by decade. Every yeah. decade has their own unique set. Mm-hmm. But... It seemed like, again, this was a Canadian slasher film, and it seemed like there were some parallels, but not quite the same parallels. So Be- Between the U.S. and Canada? Between yeah. the U.S. and Canadian horror tropes. Yeah. Like, you know, like we said with Howard, he's the goofball of the group. He's very jokey. He's He has more in common with, like, an old-style vaudeville. Very much. Like, a lot of his comedy was <sighs> cheap gags, but also... Physical comedy. Yeah. Like the actor did a great job, but <laughs> I still see I still say sorry. Sorry to him, but you know, I still say he had a punchable face. <laughs> but you know, he, he he was that he was that goofball trope. Whereas when we, we would see it in American horror films, if we're again we're relating it to, to the eighties and the campy ones, he'd be like the stoner character. Yes. Like he'd be the guy who'd be like the he'd be he'd be like Shaggy in yes. Scooby Doo. Yeah, the yeah. S- slow moving, not really quite aware of what's going right. on. The killer could be walking right behind him yep. while he's sitting in a chair, just la-di-da, just, you know, staring into space. And there's unseen horrors going And he's just oblivious. Completely. He's, in his own happy cloud. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but no. it, it, it's, it's interesting because, again, and, and, and I'm going back to what I said earlier about this felt like a safe, uh, the scholastic books telling of a horror movie, yeah. like uh, almost like the equivalent of a of a goosebumps telling yeah. of Halloween or something. Right. And we see that so perfectly in that Howard character, the goofball, right? Mm-hmm. Because instead of making like you know, we'd see it all the time, it's like sexual advances to like the female characters, mm-hmm. right? He's more like just there to be like, oh boy, it's me. I have. Like he'd be the character with the spinning bow tie. Yep. Essentially, right? And we'd have like zany sound effects happening. Well, one of the first things he does in the movie, what does he do? He busts into the main like Mm -hmm. dance hall community center with his little air horn. Yep. And he's like, Howie's home. (laughs) So he and that that actor totally knew how to nail that trope. Yeah. And they did a good job as far as the writing to see to to see that through, right? Um, but again, you wouldn't see that with Concurrently, that that kind of '80s slasher film in the United States. Now, I want to I want to throw something at it from kind of left field in regards to the actors and the the tropes with mm-hmm. the characters. So, so you have Howie, who's the goofball. Yeah. You have the big jock Axel. You have the kind of I guess you could say the recluse, the introvert the TJ, bad the bad boy. Yeah. You have Hollis, the more jolly blue collar yeah. uh he's the guy everybody loves he's the guy everybody yeah. loves everybody loves hollis so yeah. he's very just nice and endearing looks like gene charlotte looks like gene charlotte <laughs> with his handlebar mustache so when i was watching i was thinking to myself you can almost make an argument that there's a little bit taken from maybe snow white and the seven dwarves because the seven dwarves had their own unique personalities yeah. and you see with these guys that they have their own unique personality you can almost mm. see you can kind of see maybe Doc in Hollis, or you can see Grumpy and TJ, yeah, Goofy with Howard. Yeah. So again, you have you, uh, or you don't you mean Dopey? Sorry, or Dopey? That's right. <laughs> again, tropes, and you see it written all the time in all movies. There's these specific tropes 
people follow. They're easy to identify. Mm-hmm. Audience members, they they relate to them because they're like, oh yeah, that's like my buddy. He was he was kind of a goofball. Exactly. Or like, oh, like like Russell, like Kurt Russell. See, he's like the muscle head, right? He's the jock. So they're 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 easy easy tools to use in writing. I feel like, and again, because they're not looking to like make cinematic history. Mm-hmm. It's effective for this type of a film. It's almost more effective with its simplicity. Yes. Like it didn't have to be, you didn't need like a major character arc with great revelations yeah. at the end. Yeah. Uh, like a lot of times the characters are paired with each other. Like some of the, the girls are paired with each other throughout various parts of the movie. Other minors are more lean. Like you're almost always seeing TJ and Axel having conversations together. Hollis mm-hmm. is kind of with mm-hmm. everybody Howard's annoying everybody, <laughs> everybody, 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 mm-hmm. including the audience. So there's the, even the scene in the in the bar where uh, the bar owner is this curmudgeon, <laughs> jaded, war torn. The the Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Pee Wee's a large Marge character. <laughs> yeah. And he's the one that first introduces us yeah. to the urban legend of Harry Warden. He does yeah. the big flashback and explains the accident that entrapped mm-hmm. the miners and how Harry went crazy and another trope another trope it's another trope another very expository trope to reveal the story and so he's he's bringing a serious moment to mm-hmm. it and as with another trope how he jumps in and blows a raspberry right in the middle of the guy's face he really does that yeah. he like puffs his cheeks and blows a raspberry at this guy giving his large marge monologue yeah it's very weird and again going back to the topic of like what's that difference between American and Canadian horror tropes. Again, yeah. it's almost it's almost stereotypical. stereotypical. Yeah, yeah, to say like it's a nicer version, but yeah. it kind of was. Like they were constantly saying, "Oh, I'm sorry, so sorry, I'm so damn sorry." Yeah. They're constantly <laughs> apologizing to each other. Again, everyone felt really damn nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, even when, uh, like with the sheriff's yeah. character, he doesn't like when he finds a dead body. Yeah. In a horror movie, it would be laced with colorful expletives. Yep. And what does he say in this one? He says, jump in Jehoshaphat. He's about to say jump in Jehoshaphat. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I guess is a colloquialism local to Nova Scotia. I don't know. I'm not from there. And any of our listeners of Nova Scotia, please tell us. <laughs> but yeah, again, and what did we do when we heard that? We laughed. We laughed. Because it's like, wait, that's that's very unlike the... Tradi- I guess traditional 80s slasher from the United States, right? Exactly. They wouldn't do that. Like when he got off the phone, uh, I I think he said something else, but it was something akin to jump in Jehoshaphat or like, you know, Jesus, Marion, Joseph. <laughs> but it, in American slasher films, we would have heard him put down the phone, click, and just look really for long and longing and forlorning and, and all that. <laughs> He'd say, son of a bitch. But we didn't get that. No. Again, he's like very, I'm sorry. So <laughs> there's that big difference right there. It's so, it's so funny yeah. to watch that. So speaking of, in fact, the urban legend told by the by the bar owner, yeah. um, that's another thing. That so the whole movie, like, I don't know if this movie's based on a true story or not, or like inspired by a certain event that maybe happened either in the states or in Canada. Let's see. But I at least thought they pull from like with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where they say. They heavily imply this is based yeah. on actual events. This is based on actual right. case files. Right. They build this urban legend style tale 
the the end song in the credits. Yeah, it's an original song written for the movie. And it's like this folktale recounting the whole urban legend. <laughs> yeah. And it's so catchy to listen to because it really is. It's this old... Feels it like al- John Denver almost. It feels like John Denver. It almost sounds like a Renaissance kind of like uh, like in Monty Python. Uh, what, what's the Green Knight's name? I'm trying to remember his name. Oh, I don't remember. I, we'll, we'll, we'll make it up. It's like Sir Gladius Braves the Castle exactly. Door. It's very much like like one of those like ballads about a specific topic or story, right? Exactly. I I don't know. Do you think there's a chance this could have been? You know, I, I just pulled it up right now while you were talking. I'm looking at it, and it said, it said no that this was a, an original idea. It looked like they they came up with it within like a year and a half of shooting. Oh wow! So it's an original story. So again, like you were saying with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. they did a really good job of presenting it like it was. Ooh, beware, everybody! This is a real tale from 20 years ago, right? Yeah. So they did a great job with that. So what would you say all in all are some of your, let's say, favorite and least favorite bits <laughs> of the movie from what from what you saw? From what I saw, I mean, I mean, you can you can start with your least favorites and close off with the good stuff. Uh, well, you know, all through the movie, we were watching it. Uh, we kept we kept just laughing at it. Right. Yeah. Because it was it was again, it's campy. You've got that part of it. But also because. You know, as American audience, we're not used to hearing these colloquialisms like the the young the young f- female leads and her friend. Mm-hmm. So Sarah and her friend, I forgot. I think her name is Annie. I'm not sure, but they're outside like of a shop and they're talking about going to this party. And you know, in American uh, cinema, we they'd probably be talking about like, hey, you know, we can get lit or you know mm-hmm. get drunk or smoke weed or whatever. Drug paraphernalia or sex, right? Mm-hmm. Here they're alluding to like, you know, having sex or maybe making out with their significant crush. But the way they put it, again, these colloquialism, what does she say? I, I, I couldn't remember what it was. It was like, she's like poking fun at her and she said, yeah, like, uh, what did she say? It's like, we're going to roll down and yeah. like, it was something very just like, roll, yeah, <laughs> roll down innocent. and spit it up. Exactly. Like, what does that even mean? But again, it's like those moments stand out because we're not used to it. No. And it's freaking funny. It, it is. Yeah. And it's, you know, like, I'm sure they watch our cinema and think, wait, what are you talking Mary Jane's oh, yeah. lit. Like, what are they talking about? Like, it's all it's it's for a different ear from a different that's culture. Right. It's it sounds different. Yeah. It's, a, it's a different perspective. Right. So, you so know, is that something that's kind of took you out of the movie from time to time or, you know, I, I, I was still enjoying it. Mm-hmm. I still I honestly I, I can say I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, but in those moments, we're just adding to that curiosity, I think. Like it didn't take me out. I I believed it because the actors again did such a good job to present themselves as these real living people in this town of Valentine's Bluff. Or, you know, an yeah. example of the difference would probably be Halloween mm. with the way Jamie Lee Curtis and the yes. her two friends talk with each other. Totally, yeah, totally. That's exactly right. And they have their way of talking. They have their way of talking about going to the dance, and I'm going to meet up with uh, Ben Tramer and all those right. guys. So that. All that dialogue probably sounds weird to Canadian ears, and then vice versa with us. We heard colloquialisms that we didn't understand, Maybe. but yeah, it's it's the way not only of the region, but the way the age group talks. Yeah. I mean, we're you and I are in our almost mid thirties, and the way teenagers talk now is 
Completely different than Completely the 70s different. and 80s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The, the colloquialisms change, right? Everything changes. So, so if you, Okay, so let's say something you like now, and it could be one thing or it could be a couple things, like something that really stood out. You're like, wow, that was really well done. I, you know, there was this one particular shot I remember. It's when the, sh- I think it was the sheriff, arrives at the mine. And I don't think it was at the, I think it was at the, towards the end. He arrives at the mine and there's this wide master shot where they show the elevator area mm-hmm. of the mine. It's again, going down the mine shaft, however many thousand feet. Um, and it's just, he's silhouetted. And it just looks so ominous. And I did a great job to capture that. Oh, okay, here we go. We're about to go to the last, uh, uh, the climax of the mm-hmm. film, right? Where we're going to have the good guys go against the bad guy here. So it was very ominous. And they took a, a good a good couple seconds to just hang hang there. And it was a really cool contrast to like the... I guess the young, they're teenagers right now. They're not teenagers. No, I the young adults. They're in their late 20s, early yeah. 30s, it seems like, right. in the movie. So so like the, the, the young characters, I guess, right? They're down there having fun, canoodling, doing whatever the heck you want to call it, right? Yeah, 2,000 feet underground. Uh-huh. They've taken the party yes. down into the mine. And this sheriff arrives, and it's super ominous. There's no music. And again, I think that's something really interesting because we see that mirroring a lot of like 70s horror mm-hmm. where they didn't need all that, all that, atmospheric music they let that the silence just tell the story with it or just the ambient noise of maybe yes. just the wind like whistling the through wind, or or the crumbling machinery, the machinery yeah. maybe crumbling of the rocks as mm-hmm. you walk around yeah yeah so again they did that it's you felt like way like i kept asking myself is this a movie from the 70s or is it the 80s <laughs> it's 81 so yeah. obviously it makes sense it feels like that so um but that really stood out to me some of the kills were awesome. Like they the, did the, the what was it one the the hot dog one the hot dog one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that one that one I don't think at the time was something that had been done even maybe there was something similar done in yeah. uh, like a one of the eighties horror movies in the United States but yeah so Harry Warden grabs one of the miners and stick their they're in the mine or they're in the mine's rec room. They're having their mm-hmm. their hall or Valentine's Day party that they're not supposed to be having because right. Harry Warden said, if you party, you'll come get you. He's gonna come get you. Yeah. <laughs> and the girls are in the back cooking hot dogs and boiling water. Yep. They've stepped away, and one of the males comes through, he's looking in, and then all of a sudden Harry Warden's hand grabs the back of his head, boom, puts his head right in the boiling pot of water. And there's a shot from within the pot. You see his skin. Bo- yeah. And, th- you know, the special effects in this movie. Yeah. Surprisingly good. We talked about when they discover, uh, oh. again, spoilers, Mabel's body. Yes. She, so, and she is helping coordinate the the town's dance. Yeah. And she's like, she's basically the first victim, no? Uh, I think she would be the second victim. Right. Because they found the heart before. Yeah. The, the first yeah. victim is the blonde in the mine shaft. That's right. That's right. So yeah, when they discover Mabel's body at her laundromat, that was pretty cool. Man. Yeah, the sheriff is going through. He he knows something's not quite right. There's, you know, paper hearts turned upside because Harry Warden hates any kind of Valentine's right. Day symbolism. It's like an upside down crucifix. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yes. So there's hearts turned upside down. So he's looking around, and then the door on one of the dryers opens, and Mabel's body just flops out of it, and she's cooked completely cooked it is there's like steam coming out of it it's like 
Whoa! Yeah, I mean, if I was if I was in the movie theaters then watching that, I probably would have jumped. That's was, a genuine scare. Yeah, yeah, it, that it, one. It reminded me of remember in Jaws when they go underwater to see that wrecked boat. Oh, and yeah. And they discover his what was the character's name? Um, I don't remember. But well, yeah, he was like a local like fisherman. Yeah. He was like the the best one they had. Or he was something. looking for the. He shark. was looking for the shark. But that reveal when when uh, Richard Dreyfuss's character is pointing the light underwater. In that uh, in that little uh, 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 into the boat, and all of a sudden his freaking head pops up, right? Mm-hmm. That it's that same feel, yeah. It's that same feel, yeah. That was a good one. So my personal favorite. So I said my favorite moments of the movie are like the camaraderie yeah. of the cast, but one of the other things that I liked is just the general setting, like the fictional town of Valentine Bluffs, mm-hmm. but more specifically the setting of the mine, because that was an actual coal mine that they right. used for the for the production. And then the climax takes place un- two thousand feet underground, yeah. and you can just you can almost smell the air. Yeah, like you really do feel like you're in there with them, which is so. It's for, I keep saying this, but for a low budget indie slasher film, it puts you in the movie in so many different places you don't yeah. expect. So like that setting, that it was so realistic, and you know when Harry's down there, he's swinging the pickaxe away, and you know he's nicking the corners and it's sparking or he's breaking open wood panels to get to other little areas yeah to trap his prey to trap his prey yeah in terms of kills my personal favorite one is the is the shower kill (laughs) yeah that's a good one so that one is uh this young couple are down in the it's almost like the locker room where all the uniforms are being kept. Yes. So one of the boyfriend goes off to in typical horror fashion to get more beers. And then the girlfriend's like, okay, I'll be waiting for you when you get back. In the darkness. In the darkness by myself. <laughs> <laughs> Looking all vulnerable. And she's away. just she's there. All of a sudden, all the uniforms are falling on top of her, falling on top of her, and then a body falls in front of her, yep. turns around, and whose spotlight is right in her face? Barry Warden. He picks her up with two hands by her cheeks carries her to the shower and impales it on one of like one of the gross like handmade showers in the shower area where it's just like a a broken pipe that spigots water exactly yeah Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) sticks her on there turns the water on Mm -hmm. so it's spraying out of her mouth and for a movie that's not that gory right just that moment where he just pierce and then turn you're like whoa oh that was a cool kill oh yeah that was that was an awesome, awesome kill. Yeah. And, you know, like just everything about it, like the way she screams yeah. and the screams echoing and <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> that that was legitimately like, scared. Me. <laughs> so, so, sorry, we're 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 actually at a at a hotel in Anaheim by Disneyland for the weekend. So there's a bunch of kids running around in the hallway of the hotel. <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> That it's Harry Warden in the hallway. That kid is gonna. Have, that kid had good timing. <laughs> she had really good timing. But, but, but yeah. So like I said, the way she screams when Harry picks her up, and mm-hmm. and there's some like I don't know why, but there's other points. So when whenever Harry is like creeping in on his right. prey, or he's in the shadows somewhere, much like Jason with his right, you hear that. You hear that with Harry Warden. You hear his. Of his really? respirator it reminded me of like the intro or like the beginning scenes of of Halloween. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, with the mask, with the breathing. shape, right? And he, well, at that point, at that point, right? He's Michael Myers, a kid. 
Yeah. So yeah, you hear that. It's that same type of feel. Mm-hmm. It's and it built. It starts to build that tension. Like, mm-hmm. oh geez, he's here. He's here. He's here. It's yes. Before it crests over. <laughs> but I also notice like whenever he's actively doing a kill or it's a high energy, like he's chasing down somebody with the pickaxe. Right. His breathing picks up. Yes. And it almost sounds like a rhythmic be like. <sighs> Because when I first watched this and he pins her, he's breathing really fast. I genuinely thought it was a piece of music mm-hmm. that was almost like a heavy, like low-end percussion instrument. Like you would hear in a horror movie nowadays. Exactly. Yeah. But it was actually his breathing. I right. thought, again, I don't know if it's by accident or by design, but it was just a nice little touch that, for me, elevated the scene a little bit. So. Yeah, it definitely helped, for sure. And again, they didn't need the music. No. You had that happening at at once on screen. You know what's about to happen. There's about to be a kill, and you hear that, right? It's impending doom. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think that's going to be a good way to wrap this one up. Uh, so do you think this is a, a horror movie you'll revisit around ho- Halloween or Valentine's? This could be part of the... <laughs> Honestly, both. I, w- I want to get my fiance to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like a Nightmare before, nightmare before Christmas. Kinda. It works for Halloween. It works for Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> it really works. It's 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 got... It, it captures both audiences. <laughs> no. It's kind of a rom-com when you have, Howie, hello. <laughs> hey, you know what? Howard's great. I think he's probably the most underappreciated character in that movie. You might have a point to that. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he's, <laughs> it could be just a form of genius hiding behind a goofball. <laughs> yes. Very a la scary movie. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that'll do it for this Valentine's Day special of the Hollywood Half Hour. Uh, we hope you guys had a good time with this one. Tell us in the comments, have you guys seen either version of My Bloody Valentine, the original 81 version, or the new version from 2009 with Jensen Eccles? Let us know in the comments. Uh, and tell us what else you like to watch around Valentine's Day. Is there a specific one that you and a significant other enjoy? Let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Um, also, don't forget to like and subscribe for more of our content. You can also follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Half Hour. Uh, for now, that'll do it. Thanks again, Sean, for joining me on this episode. You bet. Take it easy, everyone. Bye.